Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Let me start my podcast by saying I'm a little pissed off. I'm pissed off because the whole thing that happened between Disney and the state of Florida is very, very concerning. And I have to start by saying I think Disney was not 100% right here. But they're still a corporation and they're still doing what's in their best interest. The state of Florida was 100% wrong. The governor was being authoritarian and decided to just take on Disney for his own political, maybe personal reasons. He had some things he wanted to do, and I'm troubled by how that went down. Now, let me back up in history for a minute and talk about the special improvement district that Disney had. Now, as I've talked about in the past, Disney came in and wanted to build in Florida. And you could make the case, rightfully, that Disney was trying to grift Florida and basically take advantage of Florida to a large degree by asking for a special improvement district, by trying to self-govern. Florida was kind of willing to do whatever it took because Disney was a large corporation that was going to bring in tax dollars. So you could make the case that it really wasn't a good thing in any way because Disney was really taking advantage of the state. But on the other hand, you can look at it and say that Disney actually had the right idea here. Nobody had ever really built anything on the scale of Epcot before, the the entirety of what Walt had in mind for Epcot, where he was going to build this experimental prototype community. And he had the idea for Disney World that was going to mimic Disneyland. And certainly no one in the state of Florida, in the central part of the state or in the state's capital, had the ability to really understand what was being built there and could come in and do permits and inspections and all the things that you would expect to be done as part of a building process like this. So as uh, Joe Potter put it once, you know, when they needed someone to come in and design something or inspect it or give them the best way to build something, they would hire the best and the brightest from somewhere in an educational institute, somewhere in an industry to come in and work on the project and actually review it and inspect it. By being a special improvement district, they allowed for that to happen sort of internally without having to go to the state and say, hey, can you send us somebody who can inspect this roller coaster? Certainly at that time, the state had no one. The city had no one. The county had no one. There was no way that that was going to get built to a standard if it had to be inspected that way. And who would review the plans and permits for some of the things that Disney wanted to do? Disney had a special way of constructing some of their things. You build a monorail. The monorail is a something that no one had ever built before outside of Disneyland. And so who would know how to build it and who would permit it and who would review the plans for it? So I think on the whole, you could make the case that Disney did the right thing by creating the special improvement district and being able to self-govern. They also did some things early on with roadways, garbage disposal, 
building their energy sources and so forth so they could control their own electric grid. Those things were all very positive for building Disney World the way we know it. Now, over the course of the 50 years that Disney has been a partner in the state of Florida, they've done a lot of good. They've been a, generally a good citizen to the state of Florida. They provided tax revenue. They've worked with the state. On the other side, they've done some things that are maybe a little more questionable with how they work with bonds and how they do debt financing. And because they're a city, there's some oddities there. But remember that over the course of those 50 years, new legislation was put in place. Things were refined. There was more things that happened that caused this to grow and change over the course of that 50 years. So it's not just the simple, hey, we created a special improvement district. No, no, no. There are many more laws and other Florida statutes that came into play over the course of time that augmented this. By taking that away, you're undoing all of that good. And there's some things about that that just really trouble me. When you think about how it was done, how it was removed, there was no debate that happened. It was just brought to the floor in a special session of the Florida Senate. And they said, hey, we want to remove Disney's Special Improvement District. We want to just undo the legislation. And within an hour, they had voted on it, and they voted to remove it. And the House didn't even spend that long on it. They just voted up and down, and that was the end of it. And then the governor signed it into law, which is kind of strange. You'd think that you would spend some time and actually debate it, discuss it, and come up with some things that you want to do in order to make this effective, rather than just making it pedantic in this way, where you just say, hey, we're going to do this. And so Disney is left in a position where they have to figure out what they're going to do next. Now, people have said, oh, Disney's going to leave. They're going to do whatever. I don't think that's reasonable, feasible, or logical. They may, may build more things in other states as a result of this, but I highly doubt they're going to leave. With the Vacation Club properties, with the amount of money that they generate through the theme parks, it seems unlikely They'll just have to change some operating procedures, and undoubtedly, we as consumers will feel that. Somehow or other, some way, the law of unintended consequences will come to pass, and Disney World will change. How it changes, I really can't tell. Now, one thing early on that we saw that already changed was this thing about some of the uh, bonds and some of the financing that the Special Improvement District had where they were, because they were a, a, their own city effectively, or they had two cities in that improvement district, they could actually generate bonds. So they generate these bonds for uh, some of their financing projects, right? So they actually go out and they, they buy a bond and they're responsible for it. If you do away with the legislation, or when you do away with the legislation, that bond has to revert to the county, the new county that's gonna be taking over for this, this district. The problem is that Disney is in two counties. So because one county doesn't own it, now it has to revert to the state. So there's like something like a billion dollars in outstanding bonds that now become the state's problem. We, the taxpayers, are going to pay back Disney's bond and Disney's gonna just walk away from it, basically. They don't have to repay it. They're not responsible for it anymore. And then on the other side, it was interesting because Disney still allows, um, excuse me, the state of Florida still allows Disney to keep their tax breaks because that was not part of the legislation that they undid. So Disney gets tax breaks and gets an advantage while you're taking away something else. There's some weird oddities going on there that I can't quite figure out. So things are going to change at Disney World. I have no doubt about that. They will change in small ways, they will change in large ways, but they will change in ways that will cause us 
to see differences in the way Disney operates or the cost of Disney to operate or us as taxpayers to have to deal with some of Disney's things. I, I guarantee you the law of unintended consequences will come to pass. So I thought that was really interesting, not in a good way, that they just decided to do this sort of haphazardly. Now, when the governor put together the memo that required the legislature to have a special session, what he talked about was the fact that it, it had something to do with Twitter. The state is trying to regulate Twitter by saying Twitter can't kick people off the platform and can't do certain things. So again, authoritarian government trying to tell a private company how to run their business. Now, because of equal protection, it's unlikely they will succeed in their quest to uh, take on Twitter. It's likely that the laws will prevail and it will turn out that equal protection will protect Twitter in the sense of they can't, the state of Florida can't tell Twitter how to run its business. So it's kind of strange that the state of Florida put that as the reason that they were holding the special session and wanted to do away with the special improvement district. And specifically, what happened was in the legal ruling, in addition to the equal protection thing, they talked about how because there were large companies that operated on the social media platform in the state of Florida, it gets really complicated how this all builds up. It has to do with the way the judge ruled on the case in the first place, citing that because Disney as a corporation is running as a special improvement district, I don't really understand the whole state of Florida trying to say what Twitter can and can't do. But anyway, it was weird that he, they mentioned that, but they didn't mention the whole flack about the don't say gay bill because that seemed to be the one where it set off the governor. It's, it seems, again, about the authoritarian side of things that the governor has these very strong notions about everyone has to stay in line and just do their part. He's going to tell you how everything's going to go and you just have to listen. And so Disney finds itself in, a, in an unusual position. Now I wanted to back up in history and talk again about the Special Improvement District. So the concept was that Disney really needed to have some authority to be able to create this Epcot, this Disney World. And the Magic Kingdom was part of it, but it wasn't the whole thing. Now, as you look back in history, you realize that the whole thing was cobbled together in a very odd way. I've told you before, Paul Hellowell, the CIA operative, was the person who wrote this legislation. So never forget that in 1967, a CIA operative wrote this legislation, the one that was just undone. It wasn't written by the legislature. It wasn't written by an independent sort of think tank. It was written by a CIA person. It's just very weird. And of course, he had consulted with Walt and other people at the Disney company to try and come up with what would work for the legislation and what they needed. Now, Walt dying kind of helped their cause a little bit. From what I gather, there was not much debate on actually implementing this law. The state of Florida knew that the way to get Disney to come here was to give them some autonomy, to let them do what they needed to do. So they actually voted on it kind of quickly, and there were a lot of backdoor deals done. And as I've heard it, there, have, there were several conversations had with people at Disney and people connected to Disney by legislatures asking, is this a good thing? Should I vote on it? And they agreed to vote on it. And some of them contacted Disney himself, some of them contacted Paul Hellowell, some of them contacted other people to find out what this legislation was going to do. Now, honestly, not all of them read it. Many of them didn't even open it. They just voted on it because they saw the tax dollars coming to the state and they realized it was a good thing. So it's a weird sort of thing that happened to get us here. Doesn't make it right, doesn't make it wrong, just makes it very strange. 
So they voted on something that I don't think anybody really understood. Now, by and large, Disney took it seriously. They always lived up to their end of the bargain. They always did everything they were supposed to do when they were asked to collect revenue for the state based on being a special improvement district. What they chose to do was collect the revenue that was at the higher taxing base, which would be Osceola County as opposed to Orange County, and they delivered all that money to the state of Florida. So you could argue that they did some good things there. They always heavily politicked when things needed to happen, but they never did it as trying to strong arm anybody in a sense. They just did it as the right thing to do. Now, they did do some other things along the way with the state of Florida where they got more concessions, they gave up some things, they made some exchanges along the way to make the whole thing work a little more efficiently. Over the years, of course, there were back and forth. There were a lot of, there was always saber rattling. Disney would say they would close their doors. The state of Florida said they would take away their special improvement district and everybody, everybody would wind up playing nice and get along at the end of the day. But here's a case where it just didn't happen that way. Just nobody decided to play nice. Everybody decided to play a little mean. And you can make the case that the governor has decided to make, the, make his stand and say, politically, this is where I stand, and he'll get his political base behind him before facing re-election at the end of the year. So you can make the case that his rationale was totally politically motivated just to get people on his side. Just an aside here that I thought was kind of amusing. After the, he signed the legislation, there were a couple of people in Disney World walking around with I Love DeSantis t-shirts on. And I thought, wow, that is a case of irony right there. So when Disney got the Special Improvement District, they realized that the Special Improvement District allowed them some flexibility in what they wanted to do. But to be self-governing and to work in the way that the state had set it up, Disney needed to have some way to control the district that was not them saying what the district had to do. And the way that they did this was to create two cities. These two cities are the city of Bay Lake and the city of Lake Buena Vista. They're located on Walt Disney World property, and they are actually incorporated cities in the state of Florida, and they have residents in them, real, honest-to-goodness residents living in them. So people actually reside in homes on the Walt Disney property and have since 1969. It's different people that live there all the time. In fact, all of them that live there are Disney employees. They're managers and so forth who have different roles, and they're selected to live in these about 20 homes. And they live there for some period of time. So if we hearken back to the idea for Epcot and this company town that Walt had in mind where people would live and work, but only as long as they were employed and doing something productive for the company, they could live there. It's the same principle here. These are employees of the Walt Disney Company who were offered an opportunity to live on property and live in these homes and stay there for some period of time. Now, whether they're given complete autonomy or whether they're sort of directed because they're employees of the company, I really can't say. I don't think anyone can say. I don't think anyone really knows. But consider the fact that it's a company town. These are people who work for the company who are now representing the town that is supposed to be separate from the company. It's weird. So these two cities have regular meetings, just like any city would. They elect a mayor and so forth, and they have people that have city commission. And then they have representatives that meet with the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which again is supposed to be a separate entity that actually runs everything that happens at Walt Disney World. 
anything that needs to happen from a city perspective is run by the Reedy Creek Improvement District. And when you see Reedy Creek somewhere, on a fire truck, on a sign or whatever, the Reedy Creek refers to the Special Improvement District. That Special Improvement District was named Reedy Creek Improvement District. So this district actually controls what happens within the entirety of Walt Disney World, from wastewater management to stormwater runoff to making sure that things are permitted properly and all of the things that would happen within there. They actually manage all of that stuff. And they meet regularly as a board with the two cities to make the decisions about land use and whether they're going to environmentally mitigate or whether they're going to uh, allow for permitting for the new places that are being built over like at the Flam uh, Flamingo Crossing on the west side of Disney. Those are all reviewed by the two cities and the improvement district. So there is some authority that's given that's not the company directly saying what happens. And that's how Disney always kind of got around things, right? It, it always worked. Maybe it's not the best thing. Maybe it needed some improvements. But overall, it worked for 50 years. Now, just to be clear about something, I've always had concerns about the Improvement District. Disney being granted special authority to have a, an a special Improvement District like this and having two company towns with people living there that ran everything, I've always, as soon as I found out about that, you know, I became aware of it, I guess. You know, sometime in high school, I guess I became aware of it. It bothered me. It's always bothered me. It's kind of a strange, incestuous relationship that Disney has with the community and with the state, and it always troubled me to a large degree. But realizing that it was created through legislation and realizing that it had many years to grow into something, and they were good corporate citizens, and take away something like that, you don't know how the company is going to react. My thought was, if you're going to do away with something like that, or you want to plan to do away something, with something like that, why not put it to debate? Why not talk about it a little bit? Why not actually think through what the potential consequences are of these actions? Maybe you strip away some of the powers, but don't just willy-nilly take away everything. It just feels like there has to be more thought given, or there should have been more thought given, to how this worked out. The fact that it just came down this way is a little troubling because it feels like it was just a knee-jerk reaction to something. Oh, we want to do this because we want to show we're powerful. Something about that is really odd. This is the kind of thing where it needed to have some discussion. I, I agree that it probably needed to undergo an update. I won't argue that point. But to just do it arbitrarily like that on a whim just feels like it's wrong. And it feels like it's going to have an impact that's going to be much more far-reaching than we ever realize. Now the cities and the counties around it have more control over Disney and will have some uh, ability to decide what happens there. They'll be sending in uh, people for uh, permitting and uh, they'll, have to, they'll have to review all the plans and everything else. Disney was always good about submitting all their plans to the county so they would always have them on file. But now they have to actually review them and make a decision about it. So the county's gonna have, the counties and the cities are going to have to hire more people to do the work that previously the improvement district did that Disney paid for, essentially. Now the cities and counties are going to have to pay for that. It's going to be weird. You know, there's going to be some oddities that go on there, and there'll be some construction delays, and there'll be other things that happen, I'm sure, because uh, not everything can be reviewed and uh, immediately administered. So there's always going to be some new contention. You know, and the, the complexity of the operation there, because they have... Uh, theme parks and hotels and vacation club properties that are timeshares and they have uh, buses and monorails and other public transportation all of those things have to kind of go through the process now of being reviewed 
Some of them were already federally reviewed because they're, because they're mass transportation systems, like the monorail switching over to that a few years ago. And buses are already run like that, but now they all have to be, uh, the, all these things have to be reviewed by the city and county as well, which is going to be an interesting mix of things that are going to happen. I, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's just so strange what happens there. And regarding Disney's timeshares, their DVC properties, I, I would argue that that's one of the biggest reasons that they can't change any of their operations in Florida. They are beholden to the people that are the vacation club owners. And now they have to deal with, you know, on the one side, the vacation club owners always wanting more. And on the other side, the county going to be asking for things that they're going to want. You know, that, that's going to be an interesting mix too. Oh, and just one more thing. Something I wanted to remind you about in the history of Disney was that when they got their special improvement district and they got things going, there was an interesting thing that happened that they really were pushing the whole idea for the experimental prototype community. And the whole idea was to build up around that. So when Disney started off, that was sort of the intent. By the late 1970s, it was clear that that wasn't going to be built, not exactly the way Walt wanted it to be. And the legislators came back to Disney several times and said, well, what's your plan for this? And that's when Disney started building up the idea for Epcot, the theme park as opposed to the community, and started talking about this innovation park and world showcase where they would bring together people. And it appeased the government enough that they were trying to do something and moving on the idea of Epcot. Now, as I've said before, you could make the case for the college internships and the uh, people coming on the international program and some of the other innovative work they're doing there, that they are living up to the spirit of Epcot under the way that they agreed to with the state. Though maybe it's not exactly the same thing that they had in mind, it does kind of fit in there to a large degree. So you could make that case that they were, that they were being good citizens and that they had delivered on the promise they had made back in 1967. I would also like to point out that while the state of Florida decided to act on this impulsively and somewhat decisively, they've let a lot of other things just languish out there. For example, a couple of years ago, you had a condo that collapsed in Surfside uh, down in Miami. And the governor said at the time that they would work on creating some sort of means to better inspect these properties, to protect human life, to protect these buildings. And it's been a couple of years now and not much movement has been made because it takes a lot of debate and discussion, apparently, to decide how to inspect buildings to keep people safe. Hmm, that's just weird. Um, something about that is really strange. They haven't spent enough attention on that, but yet they can focus attention on Disney because it's politically motivated, apparently. And there's also the case of, in 1992, Hurricane Andrew, ravaged Florida, and the insurance companies all had issues with the way they were writing insurance policies in Florida. We've had a problem with homeowners insurance ever since, and insurers keep pulling out of the state. There are very few insurers that write policies in the state of Florida. So what the state did was back in the early 90s was to create something called the Joint Underwriters Association, which is commonly referred to as Citizens Property Insurance, which is essentially a government-run insurance agency that writes homeowners insurance that are underwritten by a lot of the different conglomerates of these uh, insurance companies. So we're, we have to buy our homeowners insurance from the state of Florida for the last 30 years. And yet that can't even come up as a topic to discuss 
and how to control it and how to get things back to a reasonable state. But they can get all the public attention in the world about not using math textbooks or using the word gay in the sentence or making sure the diversity training doesn't happen. Those things are more important than actually protecting human lives. And while there are a lot of reasons to be pissed off, I would argue that's my main reason right there. The state of Florida clearly doesn't care about its citizens. Rather, they care about something else that's, I don't even know what it is. It's just weird. And that just pisses me off because you're gonna spend the time and the effort and the energy and the expend the time in, in the social space and in the world making a big deal out of nothing when actual things that matter, you can't even spend time to talk about. Yep, I'm pissed off. And I'm pissed off that Disney's going to change in ways that I can't even begin to understand. The theme parks that I've loved for 50 years are different today and will continue to evolve to be different and probably unrecognizable in the future. This is a very bad thing that happened. I, look, I agree, it, something could have and should have happened, but this is not the way it should have gone down. That's all there is to it. There should have been a lot more discussion and debate about what was happening and how to solve for the problem of what's Disney gonna do next? Because I don't think we know. And yes, I agree, it probably should have gone away, but should it have gone away just like that? Yeah, I don't think that's the right answer. The law of unintended consequences will catch up at some point. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to talk about education to a point. The state of Florida decided that they needed to exclude some textbooks from the classroom. And these were math textbooks. And typically math textbooks are not objectionable, but yet the state of Florida objected to them for some reason based around some weird criteria they had for looking at uh, things that go outside the bounds of what they want to have discussed in the classroom. So if it had, supposedly, if it had any reference to critical race theory or anything about inclusion, they wanted to exclude it. And when we saw examples of the textbooks, you have to wonder what they're thinking because some of these things really don't go into those areas at all, but they decided to exclude them anyway. And it's about sort of not educating a population. It's a bigger problem than just saying, hey, we don't want you to have these particular textbooks. It's about trying to uh, steer students a certain way so they'll be less likely to think for themselves or uh, want to actually learn something. It's sort of just pushing them into a, a compliant population. Now, I found this article, it's called Math, the most powerful civics lesson you've never had. It's by Steven Sauchuk, and it was from November 2019 in Education Week. Elections are all about numbers, sometimes hinging on minuscule percentage point differences in turnouts. Math teacher Allison Stroll's middle school students know this better than your average American because they've actually had to wrestle with the data. Stoll, who teaches in the Hamilton Southeastern District in Fishers, Indiana, requires students to analyze 20 years of exit poll results, including the 2008 and 2016 presidential elections, where swing states twice reshaped the national balance of political power. Officially, this is part of her math unit on data analysis and how to read and interpret two-way data tables, part of 7th and 8th grade algebra. In practice, it's also a powerful civics lesson. 
As a concluding assignment, students must use the data they've analyzed to write a paper as if they were campaign strategists for the Republican or Democratic Party. Which constituency would they target to win a particular contest? It's not always an easy activity to teach. Most students haven't quite grasped the concept of the Electoral College before the lesson begins. But by now, it's so highly anticipated that every fall, students ask Stroll when they get to do the political party thing. Some students have even noticed trends in the data, Stroll said, like the fact that the college-educated men 20 years ago were voting very Republican and have more recently favored Democrats, while the pattern is reversed for men with less formal education. They're beginning to see that some of the party's bases are changing a bit. The unusual lesson illustrates a potential missing piece in the national conversation about improving civics education, how math can be harnessed towards schools' goals of readying youth for engaged citizenship. Mathematics underpins the U.S. political system and civic institutions. That includes the legislative process, campaign finance, the filibuster, and the census. In the U.S. Constitution, the connection between math and civics is both a consistent subtext and sometimes disturbingly literal, as in the hateful three-fifths compromise, which for 80 years defined the value of enslaved people within the national system of electoral representation. Beyond civics, with a capital C, Math can help students analyze different choices and possibilities, and therefore make better sense of their upcoming duties as voters and members of civil society. That goes for issues on, of national import too, like healthcare to smaller decisions made at a school board meeting, and by local government, and even down to everyday matters like how to produce the least waste when purchasing plastic water bottles. Students are going to run this world one day and make the rules and determine the policies that govern everything on this planet, and math is a prism for understanding that. It may be the most powerful prism, said Kareem Mani, the founder of the curriculum company in Mathalicious, which develops math lessons for teachers that encourage such discussions. If we don't help students to see that, not only are we falling short of the possibilities in school, we're also being inauthentic to math. In the same way that civics tends to conjure up mental portraits of George Washington wearing a powdered wig, math can feel awfully irrelevant to students. Sure, teachers have been told that since forever that they should motivate students by using real-world problems, but many purported examples out of textbooks, trains passing, dripping water in tanks, divvying up Girl Scout cookies, can remain distressingly detached from anything consequential or interesting. Put the two subjects together thoughtfully, though, and they can be a powerful antidote to one of the things that's ailed civics culture for the last 30 years. As a number of math and social science academics have noted since the mid-1990s, the explosion of online information of varying quality means that good citizenship now hinges on being able to analyze a tsunami of statistics, graphics, and numbers, both to test competing claims and to advance new solutions and ideas in the civic sphere. There are now a few different terms of art to describe this set of skills, two common ones being quantitative civic literacy or social mathematics. One of the hottest debates in math education these days, in fact, has to do with whether statistics should be given pride of place in the secondary math sequence over the traditional course, calculus. That's in part because so much public policy research on topics like healthcare, the environment, taxes, and civil rights is generated using methods derived from statistics, not calculus. Surprisingly, the actual curricular implications of quantitative civic literacy for K-12 education have been comparatively understudied. In a 2005 dissertation, one of only a handful of publications on the issue, James W. Mouch reviewed several state social studies expectations, two sets of national standards, and one popular American government textbook to gauge how they address the concept. 
While the resources implicitly endorsed the idea of social mathematics, they rarely specified how students could use math to make sense of the civic arguments and process. The assumption was that those tools were being covered in math courses. While the words evaluate, analyze, and compare appear in many of the content standards, Mouch wrote, little discussion takes place concerning how students are to evaluate, analyze, and draw these comparisons. Now there appears to be a resurgence of interest in the idea that math could be the missing link in civics education, and vice versa, and that the connections between the two need to be a much more explicit focus of teaching. When we think about civics, we often think it's the social studies teacher's job, said Mary Candace Ragoza, an assistant professor of St. Mary's College in California and the author of a 2019 paper on the topic. But if we think about what it means to do mathematics as something we need for understanding and revealing what's going on in the world, especially with pressing issues of social concern, we need to think about the job of the math teacher too. In Indiana, Allison Stroll's teaching illuminates what instilling quantitative literacy in students might look like at a classroom level. Stroll is no math war partisan. She does use explicit teaching methods when introducing new math skills and concepts, and she expects the students to be fluent with math procedures. But she's also committed to making sure that students can apply new mathematical knowledge in ways that feel authentic and relevant, rather than on contrived word problems. Recently, for example, her school had just installed some solar panels, so Stroll adapted a mathalicious lesson that teaches algebraic expression within the topic of solar power. She asked students to do a cost analysis on the costs and benefits of sticking with electric versus purchasing or leasing solar panels, and even whether the school's solar energy production was on track to help the city meet the United Nations goal for renewable energy by 2030. Then they had to write a memo for the district's energy manager and the mayor on what other steps Fishers would need to take in order to reach that goal. And in fact, the lesson did catch the attention of the mayor who sent a representative to field students questions about solar power in the city. They had good questions prepared. Did brand new development in town feature solar power? Why not? Would solar power be an emphasis in the future? Best of all, Stroll recounted, was how the city official confided he'd been doing the same kind of calculations as her students to weigh the financial costs and benefits of solar and wind power. That knowledge reinforced the idea that fluency in algebra is a skill that remains relevant, she said. U.S. public education is rooted in the belief by early American leaders that the most important knowledge to impart on to young people is what it means to be a citizen. If America is experiencing a civic crisis, as many say, schools may well be failing at that job. I just thought that was really kind of interesting and relevant to the discussion about math and math textbooks and so forth. You really want to educate people and get them to know more. That's how you have engaged citizens. That's how you make a better society. But apparently, some people object to that. That is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, 
I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.